Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me again today as we look at another key issue that is unraveling the society we once knew and replacing it with something far more to the liking of Satan and his minions. This world is not our home. It is not the paradise that some people try to make it out to be. It is only a slum in the universe of purity and light. I long for my heavenly home, don't you? And though we live in a strange world, it is a prophetic one. It is a rebellious world that does not wish to honor God, but do away with His law and all righteousness. It is a planet in rebellion, the only one in the universe. Yet God poured out His love on us so much that He offers us a new home and a new earth where we can live in the atmosphere that is a copy of the one He originally created. Before we begin, let me remind you to renew your subscription. I'm sorry that our production company failed to put the yellow card in your packet for a couple of months, but I hope that it is in your packet this month. Please send it back to us so that we can renew your subscription. If you're a new subscriber in the last year or if you've made a gift to keep the faith in the last 12 months, we assume you want to continue receiving our timely prophetic messages and you'll be automatically renewed. Send back the card, email us, or contact us by phone or letter to renew your subscription, and all of our subscriptions are always free. But you need to let us know that you want to continue receiving them. If you would like to make a gift to support this wonderful work, it would be most appreciated. And while you're at it, why not write us a little note and tell us what Keep the Faith means to you and how it has changed your life. Also, please share the pink card you receive with your monthly packet with someone else and urge them to subscribe too. Also, you can forward the prophetic intelligence briefings we send you by email to others and encourage them to subscribe. Some of you have met my wife, Betsy. She's the managing editor of Last Generation Magazine, a soul-winning magazine that shares the three angels' messages. In this month's mailer, you'll find a special offer with details on how you can send Last Generation Magazine subscriptions to loved ones, friends, and outreach contacts. The magazine is beautifully designed and wisely written to introduce end-time messages through a variety of topics. Current events, lifestyle choices, topical Bible studies, inspirational stories of God's power, and lessons from history. Don't miss out on getting the end-of-year specials for this unique witnessing opportunity. Sign up for your own subscription, too, just so you know what your recipients will be reading. Recently, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a ruling that forced the U.S. states to approve and recognize same-sex marriage nationwide, despite individual state law and despite its unpopularity among the majority of voters. The states must now comply with the federal judicial mandate and approve and recognize the marriages of same-sex applicants. The decision forces same-sex marriage on Americans because an activist court and executive branch are determined to change America. And 
Consequently, it will inaugurate a modern Sodom. The Supreme Court decision is devastating to the moral barriers by which God's law protects society. For 200 years, the United States was strong and under the protection of heaven because it was founded on principles of religious freedom that stabilized it and gave it global recognition and power. Steadily and even rapidly now, those moral foundations that hold back an immoral tide of evil have been eroded and a new spirit will engulf the United States and the nations that were once Protestant. We have come to another important tipping point in the prophetic history of the United States. So before we begin our study, let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we realize that we are living in the last days. We need your presence as we consider the instructions you've given us to live by. I ask that your Holy Spirit will be sent to each of our listeners and fill them with your love and insight into our times. And as I share these thoughts today, I pray that your Holy Spirit will use my words to place your ideas before them in a way that will encourage my brothers and sisters in the true faith of Jesus for these last days. I place myself into your hands. Please use this clay vessel to bring your words of truth for these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to a very insightful verse of Scripture. It's found in Ecclesiastes, and we'll look at chapter 8, verse 11. The wise man knew the consequences of immorality from personal experience and has in these few words given us one key reason why wickedness abounds today. Here it is. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Do you think we've reached such a time in history today? Sin potentiates itself. In other words, when it is not checked, it gets ingrained in a society and worsens. It becomes more bold and defiant. It also becomes more aggressive against those who do stand in opposition to it. Without a doubt, we've reached an important stage in which virtually everything that has been a barrier to sin has been removed and revoked in the land. In the United States right now, there is a federally mandated legal abortion, legal same-sex marriage, legal mind-altering drug use such as marijuana in many places, and as Hollywood bombards the nation with crime, murder, and mayhem, not to mention an extreme fascination with the supernatural, We've come to a time of unprecedented wickedness and immorality. A recent Gallup poll said that Americans have shifted away from key moral values and have adopted more liberal secular values instead. The survey, for instance, found that in 2015, a record number of Americans, 63% in fact, view same-sex marriage and homosexual relations as morally acceptable. This is a 23% jump Since 2001, approval for having a baby outside of marriage increased 16 points in the same time period. Approval of divorce and sex outside of marriage increased by 12 percentage points. And there are surprising increases in approval of polygamy, cloning humans, and doctor-assisted suicide. At the same time, there is a rapid decrease in affiliation with organized religion. More and more people aren't connected to any specific denomination. They say they believe in God, but they do not want to be guided by a specific set of doctrines or even Bible dogma. 
Approximately 36% of millennial Americans, that's those born between 1981 and 1996, consider themselves nuns or unaffiliated. They want to be guided by their own minds when it comes to their values and beliefs. The rapid decline in affiliation has affected all mainline denominations. Protestants have declined from 18.1 to 14.7% during this time period, and Catholics from 23.9 down to 20.8%. For the first time in American history, nuns, or those without church affiliation, now outnumber both Catholics and Protestants combined. As an aside, do you have any idea why that is? Here's something to consider. The ecumenical movement, which is a child of Rome, has de-emphasized doctrine so much that people don't see the relevance of clear doctrinal beliefs as meaningful to them anymore. And there is another point to consider. Theology schools these days are so focused on training pastors to be administrators of churches and controllers of what is defined as church that seminary students don't learn to preach Bible doctrine that much anymore. There are few schools these days that give a superior place to truth and doctrine. Rarely do preachers these days really have a grip on the Bible and understand what it says and can articulate its truths. The result is that Christian denominations are losing their footing biblically as their membership slides. We're living in a time of unprecedented moral crisis, my friends. As the nation continues its moral slide, there is less and less stability while there is an increase in violence and crime. This in turn requires expansion of government control over more and more of your life. This is just the way Satan would want it to be. Never before has the United States been more vulnerable and insecure. Today, we're very near the brink where America will slide into the moral abyss. And when it does, watch for dramatic developments to take place. Friends, it is vital that we study the previous examples of societies that have gone this route. What happened to them is what will happen to America and to Western culture, wherever it is. What happens to America will also happen to other nations that have gone down the same path. Pay attention to today's lesson no matter where you live, because what's happening to America is already happening to other similar nations like Australia, New Zealand, Britain, and Europe, and even other places as well. As we begin our study today, let me invite you to take a little imaginary yet prophetic visit to the cities of the plain, as they are known in Scripture. We go back in time to the culture and the time before the cities of the plain were destroyed by fire and brimstone to learn the lessons we can from their experience. Perhaps we can also learn something about what is happening today from our little tour. Our tour guide, at least for the first part of our trip, is Moses himself. We start our journey together in Genesis chapter 10, and that's verse 18 and 19. Quiet, please. Moses is speaking. He's giving us a little lesson in ancient history. Here it is. And afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and Zeboam, and even unto Lasha. Oh, so that's who first came to dwell in the land of Canaan. In fact, it seems that the name Land of Canaan is referring to great-great-grandfather Canaan and all his descendants that have multiplied so profusely that it requires eight big cities to house them. 
This was the land belonging to Canaan and his posterity. Canaan came from the plain of Shinar, where he and his colleagues, Nimrod and Asher, strategized how to take control of the whole world through a global monarchy. Speaking of Nimrod, Moses says in verse 10, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech, Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And notice verse 11. It says that, And out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Calah, and Rezin, verse 12, between Nineveh and Calah, the same is a great city. So Asher went to a place that became known as Assyria, which is another rendition of his name. In fact, the three of them, Nimrod, Asher, and Canaan, were the first to attempt globalization, and its parallels to our own time are nothing short of amazing. Notice that we have just passed by many of these Canaanite cities quickly, as Moses has given us this little history tour. These cities, Moses tells us, have numerous populations. They're very rich, and they are tied together in economic alliances, trade agreements, political alignments, much like what is being developed in your day, he continues. They even developed mutual defense treaties, he adds. In the time of Lot, they'd been under tribute to the kings back in Shinar for 12 years. A global government requires tribute from its various regions to maintain itself. But sometimes those regions have ambitions and want to go their own way, and this leads to wars or rebellion. Those nations that get rich and powerful become arrogant, he says. The descendants of Canaan wanted to disconnect from the global empire, so they rebelled and stopped paying their tribute taxes to Shinar. Five kings of the region joined together in a military alliance to fight off any invaders, and they waited. They thought they were powerful enough to defend themselves successfully. All that brought trouble. Four kings came upon the cities of the plain to preserve the world order and the flow of money. One of the kings was from Shinar, which is Iraq in your day. He had a vested interest in keeping the Canaanites under control in order to preserve that world empire that had taken such a long time to build up and also the money and revenue that comes from it. Another king named Chedileomer was from Elam, known as Persia in Daniel's time and as Iran in your time. He had an interest in the wealth of the cities of the plain. And once the rebellion was put down, Chedileomer took all the rich spoils of Sodom and Gomorrah and their food stores and left. They also took Lot captive and all his possessions, for Lot was also very wealthy. When Abraham heard about it, he got involved and by the blessing of the Lord defeated Chedileomer and the other three kings with him. You probably remember that he paid tithes to Melchizedek, king of Salem. As we near the city of Sodom, Moses says, Take a look at the lush and fertile fields and the vineyards. The cattle, sheep, and other animals graze on the very best grasses. The water is abundant in the lakes, streams, and rivers. And as we enter into Sodom, the most important city in this country, he continues, have a look as we travel down the main thoroughfare. Here on the left, just there by the city gate, is this visitor center. That's where Lot often sits. He's the city's welcome committee. He always makes friends easily, and he knows how to point people in the right direction. He's even been known to take visitors home for the night on occasion, especially if they don't seem to know where they're headed. At the visitor center, our tour guide changes to a resident of Sodom, 
who has a lot to tell us. He's going to show us the best of this proud city. Look at all the people. The city is teeming with traffic. The streets are jammed with all manner of vehicles and people. And over there is a market. Notice how busy it is. Our guide tells us there are wares of every kind, large and small. Many things are imported from distant ports and food is abundant. Ah, look at those beautiful diamonds and other jewelry to adorn the citizens. And striking and attractive stones for beautifying everything from national monuments and civil administration buildings to individual homes and gardens. What a lovely place. We stand in awe of the sophistication of this paradise. The weather is perfect. The days aren't too hot. The nights aren't too cold. It's ideal for the good life. Hawkers are making loads of money, our guide says, because the people like their material possessions with all the latest gadgets and devices to entertain them and make life amazingly easy. In fact, he says the government leaders like to keep the people entertained. That way they don't complain about the political corruption or the excessive taxes. They keep the money flowing so that there is no interruption in the lifestyle. And the banks cooperate by lending out cheap money at interest rates so low that people can mortgage homes beyond what they can afford. And so they can take holidays and buy expensive chariots and hardware and other things for their homes. Banks have become liberal. So liberal, they say, that even the most unqualified person who doesn't have much of a job can get a sizable loan to buy a large home in Sodom. And there's a lot of social welfare in Sodom, too. People get welfare payments for almost any reason. They're given benefits galore, and this encourages them to become lazy and expect that the government will provide for them. For even the smallest excuses, they can get on disability and never have to hold down a job again. The economy is so robust that most people think it's all okay. They feel like they are wealthy, so they don't worry about the future. Some economists sound an alarm every year about something going to happen in September or October, but no one pays attention anymore, hardly. The central bank of Sodom keeps pumping more resources into the markets, and things just keep on going. After all, the stock market is booming. And if you go down to the stockyards and the buying and selling there is incredible. Animals of every description are bought and sold. The betting and speculation on races and competitions is also booming. And they're building like there's no tomorrow, he says. Look at all the new construction. They tear down the old buildings and replace them with larger, taller ones. Oh, and over there, he says, is an open theater. Every day there are shows and plays, at night there are light and fire shows, and they're all first class. Also, the music is incredibly energetic. There are dances and parties all over town every night, in pubs and bars and nightclubs. And at the sunset, brothels and bathhouses and escort services, they come alive too. And in Sodom, they are legal in most places. We remember that many centuries later when Jesus was on earth, he pointed out the nature of the city of Sodom. The apostle Luke recorded what he said. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, and builded. And we see it everywhere. Those of us who understand architecture, building is a statement of who you are. And when an architect builds big and beautiful buildings, it is a source of pride and even a bit of arrogance. Sodom is known for its building. Pride and arrogance was part of the reason for its destruction. On your right, says our guide, is Knight Street. 
It's the red light district, and it's not only patronized by men, but also by women. Oh yeah, there are male and female prostitutes, along with sodomites, transsexuals, pansexuals, transvestites, all of them and more. Take your pick. Whatever lifestyle you want to pursue, you can have it. It's yours. It's all in good fun, he adds. In Sodom, he continues, there are hardly any prohibitions. It's a place of personal freedom. You can do what you want. You can go where you want. You can say what you want. Then he adds, but be careful. If you try to say that something is wrong or this or that lifestyle isn't right, you may not get on so well in Sodom. The people are known to be rather aggressive against those who say that Sodom is evil. People don't like being judged, you know. They don't like being told that they've made wrong choices. We're all a little taken back by the wanton openness of this licentiousness. Our pure minds have a hard time taking it all in. But our guide has more shocking things to say. Sodom is a wonderful place of equality. Every lifestyle is accepted here before the law of the land. You can love whomever you want, even someone you're not married to. You can even marry whomever you want, even someone of the same gender as you. You can even marry your dog for that matter, but please bear in mind that if it doesn't work, you can easily get a no-fault divorce that minimizes the impact on any children that might have come through the marriage. We stand aghast and in silence. Finally, one of our group asks, you mean that marriage is really only a formality? Oh, he responds, and while we have the institution of marriage, it is merely a social contract that can be entered or exited at will. Most of us immediately think of the French Revolution and its causes. One of them was that marriage was not a lifelong commitment. God had established marriage in the Garden of Eden as the most stable institution in society. And he did so in order to keep the social fabric of the nation strong. But these people have abandoned those principles. Here's what we know about marriage in France prior to the Revolution. This is from the book Great Controversy, page 270 and 271. France presented also the characteristic which especially distinguished Sodom. During the Revolution, there was manifest a state of moral debasement and corruption similar to that which brought destruction upon the cities of the plain. And the historian presents together the atheism and licentiousness of France as it is given in the prophecy. Intimately connected with these laws affecting religion was that which reduced the union of marriage, the most sacred engagement which human beings can form, and the permanence of which leads most strongly to the consolidation of society, to a state of mere civil contract of a transitory character, which any two persons might engage in and cast loose at pleasure. Notice that in France, any two persons could engage in marriage, not just a man and a woman. No wonder Francis compared to Sodom for its licentiousness. Surprisingly, marriage was limited to only two persons. Here's some more from Great Controversy. If fiends had set themselves at work to discover a mode of most effectually destroying whatever is venerable, graceful, or permanent in domestic life, and obtaining at the same time an assurance that the mischief which it was their object to create should be perpetuated from one generation to another, they could not have invented a more effectual plan than the degradation of marriage. So ancient France and Sodom are quite similar. France had the godless spirit of Egypt and the licentiousness of Sodom. 
The Bible refers to France as Sodom and Egypt. See Revelation 18, verse 8. They overthrew both the church and the Bible, and I dare say that in our day, the Sodomites wish to do that again in all countries and in all places where they can. So we can then conclude that what happened in the city of Sodom was a prophetic prototype of the whole nation of France. But listen to this from the book Education, page 228. At the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine, but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, all are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. So, just like the city of Sodom was a prophetic prototype of the whole nation of France, so the nation of France is a prophetic prototype of the whole world at the end of time. And yes, the attempt to overthrow marriage law is bringing anarchy into the nations that were once ordered by good and reasonable laws built on constitutions that protect individual rights. Now all of that, including laws defending personal religious conviction and religious liberty, are in chaos. And in response to anarchy, such as terrorism, nations now establish oppressive laws designed to provide a measure of security for their citizens, and while the citizens give up their rights in exchange. Do you think this is happening today? Sodom rejected the truth of God, and it greatly affected the city. It was a cesspool of wickedness, sensuality, and crime. In fact, it got so bad in Sodom that Christ came down along with two high-ranking angels to investigate it for themselves. Before God punishes, He always investigates. Satan saw those angels go into Sodom on that night of doom. He was the instigator of the citywide assault on the home of Lot. Lot probably never expected such a thing to happen, and he had to act using his wits, not godly wisdom. He was ignorant of the fact that he did not have normal human beings staying with him. Though they were probably extraordinarily handsome, he just thought they were natural men. So he did what he could. Our tour guide continues. Practically the only thing that is not tolerated in Sodom is intolerance. Those who don't like the freedom and liberty should live somewhere else. Go live in the mountains, he says. Don't oppose the freedom of any and all to pursue happiness and fun in their lifestyle of their choice. We don't tolerate hateful and bigoted attitudes that well here in Sodom. Sodom was designed for pleasure, and the city fathers will protect that image. One of our group asks our guide if Sodom allows same-sex marriage. Oh, yes, he says, anything goes. It was a battle, though, to get it approved precinct by precinct. It was rather an inconvenient thing for lesbians and gays to get married while some precincts didn't allow it. If two men or two women wanted to get married and they lived in one precinct that had not approved same-sex marriage, they would have to go to another precinct to get their license where same-sex marriage was approved and then try to live in their own precinct without universal recognition. It was such an unworkable situation. Eventually, the Supreme Court took a couple of cases and approved gay marriage citywide. And while there was some discontent by a few traditionalists like that fellow Lot, it was mostly accepted and very quickly became the practice. 
In fact, often people preferred same-sex relationships to heterosexual ones. Look over there, he said. See that tall building? That's the Museum of Ancient History. We all looked and there was a magnificent edifice right near the center of the city. Its tall pillars make it look majestic. This museum is special, he added. It has artifacts and the story of Sodom right from the beginning. Let's go in and have a look around. It's free. As we enter the museum, the curator is there to greet us. Welcome to Sodom's Museum of Ancient History, he says. Would you like to see where we've come from? Our ancestors came all the way from the plain of Shinar, he said. They are intent on creating a society that is very well managed by central planning and is in such a beautiful spot and has such booming economy that no one would want to go anywhere else. And though it has always been a playground for pleasure and happiness, it was intended that everything should be controlled in such a way as to give the people the sheer joy and pleasure of all life has to offer. There would be no God that would plague us with guilt and punishment for sin. There would be none of the type of moralizing that was so familiar while Noah was building the ark. Sodom was not to be like those nomadic tribes that wander from place to place. They wanted the conveniences of the city. They wanted the city life, the culture, the entertainment. They were creating a society that did not need God. After all, we have gods of our own here in Sodom. Noah's morals were so oppressive and restrictive. Father Noah was too strict with his children. He was too religious and quite fanatical, a little crazy, and that God thing was an embarrassment. He was deluded and thought he heard voices that he said was from God. Humbug. There's no such thing as a God that would destroy the earth with a flood. So great-grandfather Ham and his descendants decided he was going to do it a different way, a much better way. First, they went to the land of Shinar. Then eventually, Canaan and his family left there to come here and start an empire here. You may remember that he and Nimrod were friends way back then. We are not a little astonished at our guide's flat denial of the divine. After all, we are all from a religious background and have always believed that God is real and interested in human affairs. This man's attitude seems quite matter-of-fact, as if he's not at all embarrassed by his atheism. In fact, he promotes this attitude as if it is the only right way to live. But someone in our group asked, Don't you believe in the Genesis account of what happened during the flood? Ha! He chuckles. You religious fanatics think that everything revolves around your God and your sacred oracles. We're in a new age now. We're enlightened. Those are just ancient myths that can't be proven conclusively anyway. We're in an age of scientific discovery. Everything has to have scientific documentation these days. Otherwise, we're not prepared to believe it. How could there have been a flood? Just look at the rock strata. It's obvious they came from eons of time going all the way back to another age, long before our own. I mean millions and millions of years. Anyway, let me go on with the story. When great-great-grandfather Canaan came here to live with his family, he knew he would have room to grow his family and live the way he wanted to. But he also wanted to assist in establishing that one-world monarchy that Nimrod was always talking about, a utopia of the best society possible. His intention was to create a place where people would come in pursuit of great pleasure, a resort town, so to speak. Whatever you want to do, he would provide a place and resources to do it. He was not interested in following the old-fashioned ways of his forefathers, they were too restricted. 
and he felt that if he invested in the right kind of places, he could make a lot of money and at the same time build a reputation for vacations, holidays, and all manner of entertainments. And he also wanted to control the culture so that it would not slip back into that old-time religion ever again. When they first came to the plains, it was a lot of work for Canaan and his family to sort out a place to live. They had to cut down forests, plant orchards and gardens, and build homes. There were only a few of them, so they started small at first. But as time went on, and the place grew. And because it was so beautifully situated, that it became a center of commerce and trade, and then more and more of a resort community. It was first just called the Vale, a lovely place where the liberal spirit could grow and flourish, and progressive it certainly became. For many years, the town lay quietly in the plain. As you would expect, it started out as a small hamlet with a few homes. As families increased in size and spread out, they needed more room. Eventually, they decided that they needed to organize a town in a more formal way. Gradually, perhaps, Canaan first built a small hotel with a little nightclub and bar. He started growing the wine grapes to stock the wine cellar. Later, he added other attractions, and a small resort community began to build up around the town. And the town began to expand in size. It wasn't spread out, but concentrated around the center. As it became better known, people would come from all over the region for holidays, and then word spread to other regions, and more people came. The place got larger and more affluent. More hotels were established, and along came the gaming, the theater, the music, and other entertainments. Oh, and the women! The daughters of Canaan were beautiful, so nice to look at. Men started coming here from all over because they heard about the women. The women weren't all that bashful either, and certain things got started, you see, and from there a whole industry of services to the desires of the body. And the food was fantastic. There was such an abundance of food that this region developed a reputation for its restaurants and delicious cuisine. People would come here sometimes just for the food. There were the best chefs in town. They knew how to cook up all the flesh meats you could ever desire. The very best meats, cheeses, and dairy products also became well known for their quality and flavors. Mutton, beef, and pork became staples of the diet of these early city builders. Sodom even had a hunting ranch, a dude ranch. Visitors would book into the dude ranch to have a holiday of chasing wild animals, hunting them down, killing them, and eating them. And what a time they had! The wild stories they told were pretty amazing way back then, but even now they still love this way of life. And the vineyards grew wonderful wine grapes. Everywhere you look as you approach our fair city, you can see that it is still that way. So the Vale became known for its wines. People would come here from everywhere to taste them. Commercial interests would come here too, in order to buy wines for export to other places. And the vintners made a lot of money selling their products. This also boosted trade of all kinds into the region, particularly as the population grew and the products became more widely known and recognized for their quality. But it wasn't just wine. Traders exported large quantities of meat and other products to far-flung cities across the Canaanite plains and beyond to Phoenicia, and all the way up to Nineveh, Rehoboth, and Cala. In order to accommodate the economic growth, holidaymakers and traders and other ancillary services, etc., they needed to build a lot of buildings. The city mushroomed into a booming metropolis that would rival the best of everything in every other place. 
and all the production brought in a bustling tourist trade. And as the city grew and grew, more and more people would come for the parties, the nightlife, and the more private entertainments. And the brothels, bathhouses, and escort services do a booming business. They started off secretly because prostitution wasn't legal way back then. Then more openly, the conservative element of society protested a little, but with all the flow of money, the booming economy, and the positive political support of the city fathers, who personally benefited by all the trade and commerce, they soon kept their peace. Perhaps the best-known feature of Sodom, says the curator, and the most maligned, is the sex trade. That's how Sodom got its name, in fact. At first, it was just called the Veil, as I previously told you, but as it grew, Canaan thought to name it something else, something that would advertise its features and pleasures. He chose Sodom, which means their secret. A secret is always very interesting to people who are not initiated. They want to know more about it, naturally. So they come here in search of the secret. The so-called secret was sort of an open secret. And eventually, everybody knew what that secret was. It was the sex trade, especially sex tourism. And it became well-known throughout all the land of Canaan and even the surrounding nations. At first, the temples were where the secrets were kept. Religious worship among us Canaanites was quite different than the old-fashioned way. It was more in line and accommodating to modern lifestyles. The temples themselves, what you might think are a little like megachurches in your time, were something of an alternative lifestyle. The priest preached a prosperity gospel, and some of them were ordaining women to the priesthood as well. Nothing was really wrong with anything. Religion should not be a list of do's and don'ts, but affirming of the individual and his personal choices. Doctrine's not emphasized here. There's no such thing as standards or rules. Those things aren't as important as knowing that you're okay with yourself. And while that sounds a little like pop psychology, it's nevertheless a key understanding that makes the temples successful and draws in the crowds. But here in Sodom, the temples also became places where people could explore who they really are, including their sexuality and their proclivities and their more basic pleasures. These temples are lifestyle-friendly, as we like to say here in Sodom. Yes, they need to appease the mythical gods, but the greater work is to help society feel comfortable with itself and for individuals to learn how to think about who they are and what they want in life. Yes, there are temple prostitutes and sodomites, which were really male prostitutes, but that's just part of the structure of worship here. And there's always a lot of dancing music with bands and hot women and all the rest that goes with it. But all of this is really part of the modern, liberal, and progressive idea or at least that's where those ideas take society. But the secret is what many people really come here for. At first, the brothels were in the back streets, but eventually their owners learned that they could bribe the city fathers and have laws made permitting their secret trade to be more open. In fact, their owners got so bold that they put the brothels on the main streets, and now you don't really have to go to the so-called red light district. If you pay attention, you'll find it all convenient enough. Did you notice on the way in here that just across the street, there's a place called Victoria's Secret Merchandise. That's a brothel. And that particular establishment brought in slaves from other places to use in the business. Men, women, boys, girls, including underage youngsters. After all, you know, once same-sex marriage came in, there were other things that the people wanted, including child porn and pedophilia. And while much 
of all this was rather discreet and carefully veiled from sight to the uninitiated visitor, there were times when it would come out in the open. So visitors from all over the world heard about it, and as the reputation spread, people would come here to party and take advantage of the social delights available in the bathhouses and brothels. We're stunned by the licentiousness of Sodom. It's just everywhere, and people are so casual about it. They think about it all the time. They dress in ways to expose their licentiousness. They eat food that stirs up their passions. They besought their minds with alcohol and live to pursue pleasure above all else. In all of this, they contribute to the rebellion and wickedness of Sodom. And they think they have freedom, but they really are slaves to their passions. We decide that we've had enough and we leave the museum. Our guide tells us that as Sodom grew, it began to have a few security problems, you know, crime and some other challenges, but these were overbalanced by all the fun and pleasure. So the town set up a wall way outside its boundaries at the time in order to protect it. Today it is jammed with buildings and homes, as you can see. Tell us a little about the Supreme Court and its decision to permit same-sex marriage, asked one of our group. Well, the story goes back a ways. Some 30 years before same-sex marriages were legally authorized, some gays began a campaign to change the attitudes of the people of Sodom and help them lose their fear and hatred of gays. They had a six-point plan which included working with businesses, government, and other aspects of society to change their point of view concerning the gay lifestyle. Gays were presented as victims of discrimination and hatred. At first, it was all about tolerance but eventually it morphed into becoming all about equality. They would not be happy until they were treated equally with other sexual orientations. And gradually, over those 30-plus years, many of the people sided with homosexuals, even if they were heterosexual themselves. And there was lots of arguing and disputing over the matter, but the change was finally enough to go further. Once the attitudes of enough people had changed, gays began to press for same-sex marriage. They brought lawsuits against anyone that would oppose them. Eventually, the Supreme Court struck down a law that the city Congress had passed to protect marriage. It was called the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA. It was all done on the basis that all men are created equal and that laws should accommodate all lifestyle choices. Gays presented themselves as being born with same-sex attraction and that there was nothing they could do about it. So, they were to be treated like everyone else. But the overthrow of DOMA didn't bring equality. It only toppled traditional marriage as the only legal option. The next step was for homosexual activists to press for gay marriage from precinct to precinct. One by one, there were 37 out of 50 precincts that had either authorized same-sex marriage by legislative action or their laws defending traditional marriage were overthrown by local court action. In the meantime, some businesses decided they weren't going to be told what to do by gays. They would not serve their weddings by making cakes or doing other services for them. After all, they said they had a traditional conviction from their ancient religion. But the precinct courts overturned these so-called convictions and ordered them to serve gay weddings or go out of business. Some were even fined and threatened with prison. Eventually, some cases made it all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has nine justices, five of which were liberal and progressive, and four of which were conservative. 
Needless to say, it was a 5-4 to four decision that justified the overthrow of all precinct laws that required marriage to be between one man and one woman. Incidentally, most of the citizens of Sodom opposed same-sex marriage at the time, yet their wishes were overthrown by an activist court which imposed legal marriage between any two people on all precincts, even if they did not want it. One of the conservative Supreme Court justices even said that the court's decree legalizing gay marriage meant that the ruler of the city was the Supreme Court, not the democratic process. He ripped the decision by saying this practice of constitutional revision by an unelected committee of nine, always accompanied, as it is today, by extravagant praise of liberty, robs the people of the most important liberty of all, the freedom to govern themselves. He even wrote that the Supreme Court has descended from disciplined legal reasoning to the mystical aphorisms of a fortune cookie. Moreover, he also wrote that if intimacy is happiness, one would think freedom of intimacy is abridged rather than expanded by marriage. Ask the nearest hippie. Expression, sure enough, is a freedom, but anyone in a long-lasting marriage will attest that that happy state constricts rather than expands what one can prudently say. The Chief Justice, in his dissent, was concerned that the court was overstepping its constitutional bounds. He wrote, if you are among the many of whatever sexual orientation who favor expanding same-sex marriage, by all means celebrate today's decision. Celebrate the achievement of a desired goal. Celebrate the opportunity for a new expression of commitment to a partner. Celebrate the availability of new benefits. But do not celebrate the Constitution. It has nothing to do with it. He also wrote in his dissent, Supporters of same-sex marriage have achieved considerable success persuading their fellow citizens through the democratic process to adopt their view. That ends today. Five lawyers have closed the debate and enacted their own vision of marriage as a matter of constitutional law. Stealing this issue from the people will, for many, cast a cloud over same-sex marriage, making a dramatic social change that much more difficult to accept. But having said that, our guide says, same-sex marriage was authorized by the Supreme Court on the basis that all citizens of Sodom should be treated equally. Equality has always been the mantra of those pressing the progressive agenda, whether it's women's liberation or the rights of same-sex couples before the law. One of our number then asks another question. What do homosexuals really think about marriage? Is it so important to them that they would press to overturn the oldest institution on the planet? One commentator during a news interview said they want to wipe out the ancient religion. In other words, removing all the barriers and restrictions of the religion of Noah is the real aim of these activists. They don't want anyone or anything to tell them that they're doing wrong. Another commentator, a lesbian activist, made it clear that the real issue isn't equality of marriage. It is about eliminating it. Here's what she said. It's a no-brainer that homosexual activists should have the right to marry. But I also think equally that it's a no-brainer that the institution of marriage should not exist. Fighting for gay marriage generally involves lying about what we're going to do with marriage when we get there, because we lie that the institution of marriage is not going to change, and that is a lie. She went on to say, the institution of marriage is going to change, and it should change. And again, I don't think it should exist. 
and I don't like taking part in creating fictions about my life. That's sort of not what I had in mind when I came out 30 years ago. I have three kids who have five parents, more or less, and I don't see why they shouldn't have five parents legally. I met my new partner, and she had just had a baby, and that baby's biological father is my brother, and my daughter's biological father is a man who lives in Russia, and my adopted son also considers him his father. So the five parents break down into two groups of three, and really, I would like to live in a legal system that is capable of reflecting that reality, and I don't think that's compatible with the institution of marriage. So clearly, the gay marriage issue is about radical cultural change and removing the fabric of the traditional family structure and its relationship to society. Some people believe that a legal system that gives benefits to married couples but withholds those benefits from other types of relationships is also wrong. In other words, they advocate getting rid of the privileged status of marriage altogether. As you can see, it's been quite a debate in Sodom. He says, Most people believe that citizens have the right to live as they please and love whomever they want. But the issue of marriage has changed Sodom to where marriage is no longer much of a factor anymore. Marriage, as the fundamental social fabric of society, has ended, essentially. Yes, there are still marriages, but it doesn't carry the same gravity and weight. There's no real commitment required for marriage anymore. Our guide has been honest with us, and we've spent far more time in Sodom than we have planned, and it's time to take our leave of this incredible city. We bid our guide adieu and go on our way. Friends, I don't know about you, but there are so many parallels between where America is now and where Sodom ended up. While we are to leave the big cities and get away from the polluting progressive attitudes and practices of the cities, it is also important to understand that some of these principles extend everywhere. Fortunately, we can come out of Sodom in our own minds and in our lifestyles. We can abandon the principles that prevail in the wicked hearts of those attached to the world and become loyal to the Bible and its pure and eternal principles. Could America be coming to the very same time in its history where Sodom ended up? Will the judgments of God be poured out on the big progressive cities of the land? What about other progressive nations like New Zealand or Canada, Britain, etc.? Will God allow them to go on for a while with perverse laws and oppressive enactments that remove religious freedom as well as all moral barriers? Will God give them the chaos they really want by doing so? The chaos and bloodshed of the French Revolution was the direct result of the rejection of the Scriptures. Will America and other Western nations follow in its path? Sodom was destroyed for its rejection of heaven's laws. Will modern nations follow suit? Gay activists know that they cannot tolerate the Bible because it condemns their lifestyle. So they have to remove biblical Christianity from society if they are ever to live in peace. But even this will not give them what they desire. And by sowing to the wind, they will reap the whirlwind, says Hosea in chapter 8, verse 7. The dissolution of marriage, as defined by heaven, will inevitably bring disaster and destruction on the very ones who demand recognition of their perverted lifestyles. And where does it all end? It ends with the destruction of large cities. Listen to this statement from Evangelism. Page 27. 
I am bidden to declare the message that cities full of transgression and sinful in the extreme will be destroyed by earthquakes, by fire, by flood. All the world will be warned that there is a God who will display His authority as God. His unseen agencies will cause destruction, devastation, and death. All the accumulated riches will be as nothingless. Calamities will come, calamities most awful, most unexpected, and these destructions will follow one after another. If there will be a heeding of the warnings that God has given, and if churches will repent, returning to their allegiance, then other cities may be spared for a time. But if men who have been deceived continue in the same way in which they have been walking, disregarding the law of God and presenting falsehoods before the people, God allows them to suffer calamity that their senses may be awakened. The Lord will not suddenly cast off all transgressors or destroy entire nations, but He will punish cities and places where men have given themselves up to the possession of satanic agencies. Strictly will the cities of the nations be dealt with, Yet they will not be visited in the extreme of God's indignation, because some souls will yet break away from the delusions of the enemy, and will repent and be converted, while the mass will be treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. Listen carefully to these verses from Revelation 11, 3-13. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand Two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Friends, these are Old and New Testaments of the Holy Scripture. They have held the wicked in check from doing all that they want to do in rebellion to God because they testify against them. Now verses 7 to 10. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them, that dwelt on the earth. When the Supreme Court made a nationwide decision to require all U.S. states to approve of same-sex marriages, the rejoicing and celebration among gay and lesbian couples was enormous. It was as if they have slain the two witnesses of God's word officially and legally, just as they did in Sodom and in France. Friends, my thinking is that we are going to see a lot more stress come upon Christian people for their disapproval of the gay lifestyle. Expect that the Word of God will be increasingly trampled in the dust in Western countries as they make laws to overthrow its influence and protection. But watch out. There's also coming a time when the Word of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament will again rise to their feet. The voices of truth will be withdrawn from the earth because they've been rejected and crucified. Listen to verses 11 and 12. And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. 
But when they are withdrawn and there's no further voices to defend the truth and prevent the wicked from accomplishing their goals, there will be terrible calamities like never before. Here's verse 13. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. God is withdrawing His Spirit from the wicked cities which have become as the cities of the antediluvian world and as Sodom and Gomorrah. Costly mansions, marvels of architectural skill will be destroyed without a moment's notice when the Lord sees that the owners have passed the boundaries of forgiveness. The destruction by fire of the stately buildings, supposed to be fireproof, is an illustration of how in a short time Earth's architecture will lie in ruins. That's Last Day Events, page 112. Ultimately, it all ends with the close of probation. My brothers and sisters, do you not believe that we are near the end of time? It is amazing how rapidly the very things that Bible prophecy tells us will come to pass are being fulfilled in this our generation. Your eternal destiny is at stake. Please, my friends, make sure your calling and election is certain. We will surely come upon stressful times, for the secular forces pulling society apart are aiming at you. Live close to Jesus. Give Him your heart today so that He can transform you into His agency of good. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for revealing to us what is happening in our world. We need your grace to grow in us so that your Holy Spirit guides everything we say and do. Now more than ever, we need your presence because our world is such a wicked place. Yet you have called us to live righteously in the midst of it. May your presence ever be with us, no matter what the difficulties that lie ahead. Forgive our sins and give us power to live pure and sinless lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us, and thank you for your support. The song you have just heard is called How Cheering is the Christian's Hope, sung by the Three Angels Chorale, Betsy Mayer, conductor. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called On Our Journey Home. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. 
If you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the On Our Journey Home CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Scottish Government to Interfere with Families. The Scottish government is implementing a new law that requires the government to snoop on parents to see whether they're giving their children enough love and hope and spirituality and creates an army of snoopers to do the job. The scheme requires that every person under 18 should be appointed a named person who would judge each child on the basis of a set of markers designed to test their well-being. The horrific new law would require guardians to monitor well-being, including whether the child is healthy, safe, and active, and could include how much hope and spirituality a child is given. Every child will be assigned a named person, a health worker or senior teacher, to oversee their upbringing to the age of 18 by 2016. Family groups believe that the law, which is already being implemented, will undermine the role of the parents. Bob Fraser, the country's top civil servant who has given the law the title Getting It Right for Every Child, said it's about linking positive well-being and positive outcomes for children, not just the usual suspects, not just those we identify as those in need. Every child deserves to have positive well-being. We have had suggestions of different indicators of love, hope, and spirituality. The disclosure has fueled fears that families could be reported to social workers if they fail to meet a state-defined happiness index. This is a dark, deeply worrying, and insidious development, said a spokesman for the No to Named Person or the No to NP campaign. Apparently, the named person will police family life, according to some ever-shifting happiness index, he said. It's an impossible standard for parents to measure up to. Parents will be horrified at the suggestion of being targeted because a state guardian doesn't regard their home as sufficiently spiritual, said Liz Smith, Scottish conservative spokeswoman for young people. But a Scottish government spokesman said it is impossible to predict which children may become vulnerable. And so the named person is absolutely for every child so that concerns are picked up early and no child goes without support. The government argues that the law will ensure potential cases of abuse or developmental difficulties will be spotted and acted upon at an early stage. Meanwhile, the parents of children who miss their appointments at hospitals are already being reported to state guardians. Doctors have told them that they are now required to act as informants for a child's government-sanctioned named person, two years before the controversial legislation actually comes into effect. Medical staff are already threatening to report mothers or fathers if they forget to take their children to hospital appointments. In a letter sent to one family by NHS Fourth Valley, a pediatric consultant wrote, We are now required to inform the named person for your child if your child fails to attend an appointment. In addition, we may also send them copies of future relevant reports. 
The state seems intent on usurping the role of parents and reducing them to helpless spectators in the lives of their children, said Christian Institute Director Colin Hart. There are also fears that parents could be dragged into damaging child protection probes for trivial reasons. Stuart Waiten, a sociology and criminology lecturer at the University of Averte, claimed that innocent issues such as what a child eats or the views they express could be used against parents. He added, it will take very little to trigger an investigation into a child, and from there a false picture can easily be arrived at. Under the scheme, the government has conceded that there is no opt-out for parents who do not want the intrusion into their family life, even for religious or philosophical reasons. Adrian O'Neill, QC, refuted the argument that the named person would not interfere in private family life. He said there would be a state functionary who has the power to interfere in the lives of every child in Scotland and in family life, the power to come between the child and their parents. He added that the named person's powers to obtain and share confidential data on families without consent constituted further interference. The basic aim is that the well-being of every child is to be promoted and safeguarded. That's what parents do. That's what parents are for. And what of religious upbringing? Will the state try to interfere with the religious messages and instruction children are given? As the end of time approaches, oppression and coercion will increase. People will become familiar with government pressure to conform to their dictates that infringe on personal liberties. This will help prepare the way to receive increasingly oppressive enactments, including the final worship laws. Next, lessons from Charleston's tragedy. Perhaps the most striking thing about the aftermath of the mass murder in a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, is the attitude of the victim's families toward the killer. During Dylan Roof's bail hearing, one by one, family members of the dead spoke through a television monitor in the corner of the courtroom to Mr. Roof, who was watching from his cell. One by one, the survivors, members of Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, offered him forgiveness for making them motherless, snuffing out the life of a promising son, taking away a loving wife for good, and bringing a grandmother's life to an end. You took something very precious away from me, said Nadine Collier, daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, her voice rising in anguish. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. As they testified to a faith that is not compromised by violence or grief, they reminded Mr. Roof that God can forgive too. We welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms, said Felicia Sanders, the mother of 26-year-old Taiwanza Sanders. You have killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know, she said in a quivering voice. Every fiber in my body hurts and I will never be the same. Taiwanza Sanders is my son, but Taiwanza was my hero. Taiwanza was my hero. But as we say in Bible study, we enjoyed you but may God have mercy on you. The act of racial terrorism did the opposite of what was expected. If Roof intended to stir up a race war, the Charleston church members were having none of it. Instead of riots, there was forgiveness. I acknowledge that I am very angry, said Bethann Middleton Brown, sister of one of the victims, DePayne Middleton Doctor. But 
She taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. I pray God on your soul. What a statement. No room for hating? The Bible says we are to love our enemies, Matthew 5.44. This principle was clearly demonstrated by the families of the victims. Wouldn't that solve the race problems we face? What if everyone forgave each other? It is the Spirit of Christ that forgives. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, as he was hung on the cross. What better demonstration of that Spirit could there be than was seen and heard by Roof himself? Charleston is a lesson for the whole nation, even the whole world. Racial hatred has no place in America. It has no place in the Middle East. It has no place in Africa or anywhere else. It has no place nowhere. Let the record of those courtroom testimonies be blazoned across the nation in living color. Let their words be repeated on the airwaves, the internet, and in social media. If we want peace in our cities and our streets, we don't need Baltimore's and Ferguson's. We need Charleston's. Not the murderous rampage, but the spirit of forgiveness. We all have one thing in common. Our hearts are broken, Charleston Mayor Joseph Riley Jr. told a crowd gathered in an arena to commemorate the victims. If that young man thought he was going to divide this country with his racial hatred, we are here today and all across America to resoundingly say he measurably failed. The enemy is not one race or another, for we are all of the same human brotherhood. We are all descendants of Adam. The real enemy is Satan, who stirs up racial animosity. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, that in the last days, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. The cold-blooded mass murder is a testimony to the truth of the Lord's prophetic words. It is a potent reminder that Satan is still stirring it up, not just racial hatred, but hatred of all kinds. And he will continue to do so to the close of probation, and even again at the end of the millennium. The Charleston victims, Bible students, demonstrated that love and forgiveness is also still around too, and that it is more powerful than revenge, more powerful than hatred, and more powerful than pain. And that's the biggest lesson to be learned from the tragedy in Charleston. Bible prophecy will certainly unfold, This earth is filled with pain and sorrow and hatred, which will increase until the close of time. Crimes almost too gruesome to mention happen all too often. Yet we are advised in Scripture, When these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Luke 21, verse 28. Next, another prominent evangelical undermines Bible authority. Former U.S. President Jimmy Carter told Mark Lamont Hill of HuffPost Live that he believes that Jesus would approve of gay marriage. I believe he would, responded Carter to the question, would Jesus approve gay marriage? I believe Jesus would approve of gay marriage. I don't have any verse of scripture. No, 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 just intuitively, yeah, Hill agreed. I believe that Jesus would approve of gay marriage, but I'm not. That's just my own personal belief, Carter continued. I think Jesus would approve of any love affair that was honest and sincere and was not damaging anyone else. And I don't think that gay marriage damages anyone else. Jesus clearly defined marriage when he said concerning divorce, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. 
For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Mark 10, verses 6 through 9. Besides Carter's sheer ignorance of Scripture, his point exposes his naivety concerning the need for children to have parents of both genders, the undermining of the marriage institution in society and its destabilizing effects, and of the gay agenda to take society's morals away from scriptural norms in other areas as well. Think French Revolution. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, Luke 17, verse 28. Next. British Values Guidelines Threaten Christian Children and Families Children in Britain could be viewed as potential extremists if they say homosexuality is wrong or evil, said Britain's Education Secretary Nikki Morgan. Government guidelines designed to detect possible radicalization and prevent Islamic terrorism could also trigger teacher concerns if their students make comments against homosexuality. Traditional Christians are concerned that they will now be viewed with suspicion by the government if they raise their children in line with their conservative religious beliefs. The British Department for Education has issued the new guidelines that now identify things that children say as potential identifiers of pupils at risk of radicalization, according to Morgan. But we have since last year been very clear that schools should be teaching British values those are the things that we all hold dear, she said. During medieval times, the Waldenses, who were persecuted by their society for their beliefs, had to teach their children to be very careful what they said, so as not to betray their real identity. Could Britain be resurrecting those times again? Schools in Britain are being assessed whether they are promoting British government-identified themes, such as democracy, tolerance, and the rule of law. Two Christian schools are being closed after they were judged to have failed the British Values Test. The tests were established to prevent hardline Muslim groups from infiltrating schools. Now these very guidelines could easily be used against Christians whose views are outside the mainstream. When asked for an example of something that would trigger teacher concerns, Morgan identified views against homosexuality. It could trigger a thought. It could depend very much on the context in which that was being discussed, she said. But teachers would discuss it as they already do when they're concerned about children who are at risk of perhaps being drawn into a gang or being exploited or being neglected at home. This is a safeguarding issue, she said. But Christian groups are concerned that families who believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman will now be linked with extremism. They fear that teachers will become spies on conservative Christian families in a new era of thought police. Government interference with beliefs and values of its citizens is crucial to forming a globalized religion before Jesus comes. Islamic extremism is the excuse being used to resurrect the principles of medieval thought crimes. Views that are not considered to be mainstream will become politically incorrect and will not be tolerated. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. 
And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.